1: welcome back to the love tennis podcast with me james gray him calvin betton and also george belshaw Uh, thank you for listening as always and thank you for leaving us a five-star review as several of you have over the last couple of weeks, we are driving that average up. We're flying up the charts and we can only do it with your help. Um, most recently, and I apologise Marta for mispronouncing your name, Marta Quijdala, I believe. Um, she left us a five star review and says, great. One of my favourite podcasts to listen to, informative and funny at the same time. Well, we do try Marta. Thanks very much. Uh, we've also had an email. Uh, you can always get in touch with us via email lovetennispod at gmail.com it's from miles hutchinson i don't know where he's from you can always say where you're from if you enjoy it's old, old school radio that isn't it it's miles in little Swaffing. Uh, i don't know where miles is from maybe it is little Swaffing. Uh he says i've been listening to you for roughly a year now and you're now firmly my favorite tennis podcast of the two i listen to i'm contractually obliged not to mention the other one that he listens to but you can probably all guess uh, thank you and please keep going. Keep up with the insights, the honesty, the no-holds-barred approach. I love the technical analysis and also your perspectives on the more psychological aspects of the game. Oh, and the light touch and the humour. Thanks again and all the best to you. Thanks, Miles. Um, thank you so much for getting in touch. It's great to hear from from listeners, to know that you're out there. I see you as ones and zeros on the screen in the uh, analytics, but we, it's always nice to know that you're humans as well. We've got loads of tennis to talk about this week. Uh, we're going to I know many of you have been asking for Calvin's Minute Explainers, uh, Minute Tennis as we called it, I think, or Minute Tennis, it's a pun that really only works written down, so he's going to talk to us about clay court tennis and playing on clay, uh, we'll talk about Emma Raducanu and the Billie Jean King Cup, uh, we'll also talk about Noah Djokovic, Alejandro Davidovich Fakina, or ADF as he will be for the rest of the pod, Stefanos uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas, Uh, And a little bit about the number one ranking as well, which we think might fly around the world a little bit in the next couple of weeks. But there is, I think, only one place to start, uh, certainly in the UK, and that is Emma Raducanu. Uh, She was in action over in Prague over at the weekend. A few of our colleagues were there as well, who took Easter away from their families to go to the Czech Republic at this time of year, which... I think is lovely. Uh, she picked up her first top 50 win since the US Open. It was her first professional match on clay, would you believe it? It was her first singles match in the Billie Jean King Cup. Um, George, I know she was absolutely thumped by Marketa von but in fairness, she is a French Open finalist, so no great shame in that. Um, what is your assessment of Emma Raducanu on clay?
0: Um, mixed, I would say. It was good... good. <laughs> Good to see her get off to a winning start. I mean, we, we spoke a little bit the uh, end of last week about kind of the the strength and depth the Czechs have at their disposal. Um, I'm not sure where Martin Kober actually would be in terms of my ranking of Czechs players. But she's probably scraping the top five, and she's still a, a top fifty player. She's
1: a Czech number six, I think. I'm number six. There idea.
0: we go. Um, so you know, I think that, that that just goes to highlight what that what they've got on offer. Of. But um, that was a good win for Adekanu. I th- Think I'm right in saying that's her first top fifty win since the so US, was the US
1: Open. Open semi-final. I think was the last time the she finals. beat a player in the top fifty. In fact, that was the last time she took a set off a player in the uh, in the top fifty. And Martin Kovar, in fairness, I think he certainly was fifty in the world. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So you know, you, you can't say that's not encouraging, um, as I'm sure we'll come on to more the the Vondrousová defeat. <laughs> is pretty disappointing. Um, you know, that was a player she's, she's beaten before. I know Vondra has actually come back into some form since they met at Wimbledon. So, you know, maybe that, that result has been taken um, a little bit differently uh, given her kind of career span. And as you said, she has been a French Open finalist before. Um, but I think the, the, probably the bigger concern with that, and I think this is something we've said time and time again about Redicano and where she needs to get to, is is kind of these blisters. And you know, I think Anne Kiyophavong said she needs to be more robust. And you know, I, I, my worry for her at the minute is we're talking about someone getting used to the tour and used to the rigors of the tour, but she's not had a very rigorous season. I mean, she's not played that many matches. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about how badly she's holding up physically at the moment um calvin when you
1: see a young player you know struggling is this a thing that happens is there is there a period in everyone's career when the workload goes up and there's an adjustment period in terms of stuff like blisters you know she's had that hand blister out in australia and now these blisters on her feet and losing all her toenails you know is that just something that happens at one point in everyone's career
2: um no uh i wouldn't say so really um the blisters thing is really weird because the blisters I guess in any sport would come if you've if you're coming back from an injury or something and they'd start coming in training, but she hasn't really been injured. Mm. I don't understand why she'd be getting blisters. You'd think going really into the medical sort of side of it, not, um, is basically <laughs> if you do something, if you play more tennis, your your skin becomes you get sort of calluses on them that stops it from getting blisters. And it's the same with your feet, your feet become hard, so they don't get blisters. So it's really weird that she's getting them because even though she's not been playing matches, she'll have been training and it's the mm. same sort of thing so um and also in terms of her not playing much i've said this in previous weeks she's never really played much right like, throughout her sort of late mid to late junior career and start of her professional career she's never really played much tennis um but, but
1: so... to to kind of those two points seem to talk to each other right so if she's never really played much tennis and she is now playing a lot of tennis is it that her you know her her pads on her feet and her hands have never had this kind of workload before.
2: No, because she'll be training. What well, I'm talking about when I say she's not been playing much, she's she's not been had many matches. She's always right. taken sort of lengthy times out of tournaments for injury or one reason or another. But she'll be training. Always been
1: on court, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I, I think look, and when I say you need to be training a lot, basically, if you train for an hour and a half a day, you're not going to be getting blisters. Mm. Um, it's it's not like you need to be going four hours a day every day to not get blisters. Like you won't. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty. Besides, so that's I'm not I'm not for one minute suggesting that she's not getting blisters. She clearly is, but I don't really I don't have an answer as to why she's getting blisters at this stage of her career.
0: I don't want to compare her plight to mine this week, but I've been having a bit of a disaster with blisters myself in the past week. But George, um,
1: you've you've had a knee injury, uh, so you can't hit a tennis ball. So I dread to think what you're getting blisters from.
0: It's crutches. It's um, <laughs> <absolutely laughs> agonising those things. I've rubbed my hands. Someone's told me I need to put socks over them or something, or some sort of taping. But honestly, good advice a, good, for anyone a else. good
1: pair of socks fixes a lot of problems. I am currently <laughs> talking to you from a noisy room. Uh, with a microphone covered in a pair of socks in an effort to to deal with some of the muffles. So, um, yeah, if anyone's got any advice for George on dealing with crutches and crutching blisters, uh, lovetennispod.gmail.com or stick it in a five star review. I'll definitely read it. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, yeah. Troubling for radikanu This is obviously, as I mentioned, not her first blister issue. Um, she also gave this detail that, that made kind of headlines back in the UK because it was something that she said uh, that she'd lost all the toenails on her feet from from the I don't is that a clay thing is that a transition to clay thing or is that again just something that happens? I've never had it happen to me no, no one knows. No one has an answer as to why
0: we i it. I've, I've never lost a toenail on the tennis court, but no, I, we're near yeah.
2: that standard. So no I've coached a lot of players who've done the transition from hard to clay, clay to hard, and I've never known the toenails thing mm, <laughs> happen. I don't know. I'll, I mean... I'll say it. I can't, I can't say it on this sort of slight subject. Um, and I can't really go into more detail, but I'm told that we might not be far off from another coaching change in the Raducanu um, <laughs> setup.
1: I mean, Calvin, in fairness, like while that does sound like well-sourced insider information, you could probably say that... Uh, you could have said that at any point in the last 12 months and you'd have been right. That's true. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, yes, George. I
2: mean, logically,
0: we can say we're not far off given she changes every three or four months. Yeah. <laughs> three or four months ago. So. Yeah.
1: I'm not... You know what? And And to kind of not even to play devil's Africa, this is i genuinely believe this i don't think it's the worst thing in the world like don't necessarily think that all right for it may be happening for whatever reason i know there's a lot of people around them but if i were a player i would want some consistency but i also think a little bit like andy murray in the last few months and again i know there are different reasons there but i'm not averse to getting a lot of different voices into a camp and, and lots of different ideas as to how to go somewhere george
0: uh, I Yeah, I don't mind that theory in general, and I'm sure Calvin would have his own thoughts on that for me. But if I was a coach, and I think of this in any sport, I'd want a body of about, you know, I'd, I'd want a season or, you know, maybe something like 30, 40 matches. So you can say to the player, here's what we've been doing. Here's how you started. Here's where you got to, you know, something like that that you can work with. I mean, she can't have played more than about 10 matches this season like really because she's been losing first or second round every week Mm. so i don't really from belts's perspective i'd be pretty frustrated if she's then getting rid of me at that stage because she's played probably fewer matches this year than she played in the entirety of the u.s open maybe it's a 10 match rotation that she's going for like that's why (laughs) but uh, the guy she knew uh, whose name richardson uh got (laughs) canned after 10 matches at the u.s open i've won all 10 of these that's your, your stint. But he, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's pretty strange if she is going to do that again. Um, although I'm, I'm sure we said last week, he's definitely going to be in Stuttgart belt. So yeah, can't be that imminent.
1: Uh, Calvin, I mean, when you work with a player, how long do you think it takes for you to get to a point where it's like, you know, you've got your feet under the table, you know the ins and outs of the player and you should have made some progress by now?
2: It varies. Although I often say that with coaches you should be able to have him improved something relatively significantly in 6 weeks. Right. If you're 6 weeks in and and I think that's the case in any sport as well also I'm not saying you can make a huge difference but I would think if you're working on a one to one basis regularly and yeah, look and that's what I'm talking about one to one basis like sometimes like some of the jobs that I do like players because they they don't have loads of money will will have me for one week and then they won't be able to having a for the next three weeks and then I'll come in after that but if you're doing like in that situation where you're full-time three to four hours a day I would think that there there should be some improvement in certain areas of the game in in a six-week period and then build on that and then keep going and I think it's yeah look if if she's decided that the coach isn't very good and I don't know Torben belts at all so I don't know if he's if he's a good coach or not but and she's decided he's not and she needs a change. That's fair enough. There's no point just sticking with it. And she might have got that six week period and thought I'm no better than I was six weeks ago. And then it's time to move on. But you'd worry that there's an element of I don't know whether it's it's Emma herself or her agents or her, her parents or whatever, just not really taking advice and not listening. And if, if we're getting into a realm of, right, that isn't what I want to hear, so I'm moving on to the next person, That. That then becomes a problem, I think, because then I think you can get into the habit of that.
0: Calvin, could I, this might be a really stupid, obvious question, but how are you as a coach pointing out to the players you're coaching what differences you're making? Are you you say like in a six week period you should be able to say tangibly what you've improved? But if they're not playing matches, where where are you kind of tracking that level of improvement? Or...
2: I think now with data and things. So say that you were working on say that a player wanted to improve their serve and i think then you can simply look at things like first serve percentage points one on first serve points one on second serve and go this is where we were 6 weeks ago this is where we are now and and not just in one match i'm not saying choose a match where they've served at 30% first serves and then randomly <laughs> choose a match where they've choo- uh, where they've served at 70% and then go that's the difference that kind of fluctuation can happen but i think it's it's overall and and yeah just on on things like that you can you, you can generally find some data and I think that is, it's 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 a bit different in tennis because there's always some level of subjectivity with data. I think as well as I've had a mini argument with someone on Twitter last night and this morning about um, uh, if anyone is interested in uh, what's the difference between a forced <laughs> error and an unforced error. Um,
1: uh, yeah, I mean that that we could have a whole podcast on that. I think.
2: Yeah, um, we can talk about that later. Actually, I think that might be an interesting thing to go into. Um, on the city when we talk city pass, um, but yeah, I think it's generally data, George, and, and a feeling. And look, you know, you can ask players as well. You know, I, as a coach, I tend to ask a lot of questions. I think that's a, it's a sort of coaching technique that I use. I'll ask, How does that feel? Where are we on that? Any way you think that could be better. And I think you see again, say you're working on second serves and six weeks down the line, there's no improvement in the second serve. I think you know, you're then going to be asking questions. Of the coach.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see um, how that evolves and and, and when a, a potential change might happen. If it does, um, I guess at the moment we are still speculating a little bit. Uh, as you say, George, she is out in Stuttgart this week. I don't think she's playing today. We're recording this on Monday um, because I wouldn't want to blow my Radicanu kind of. Tickets too early in the week if I were the Stuttgart organizers. She's got Storm Sanders, I believe, in the first round. And she's a number eight seed, so has a decent draw on the way through. Um, how do you think she might go here, George? Uh,
0: not beyond round three. Or <laughs> is it the quarterfinals by then? I think she's due to meet Sfiontech then. Um, I think she's got a winnable couple of matches. You know, Sanders as a qualifier. Um, and then is it Georgie potentially? Okay. Take your word
1: for it, George. I haven't got a draw in front of me. Oh, okay. Getting there, getting there, slowly.
0: I can't remember the two, but I looked at them and I was thinking, okay, that that's just another sort of match that I'm wanting to see her start to win. And then it's Fiontek, who at the minute is on a ridiculous run, as we may talk about shortly, um, when <laughs> she's won about. 19 matches in a row and in the last 15 has won one of the sets six level six one so i wouldn't be rating Radicanu's chances too highly in that one if if she does get there but she's
1: i'd say she's guaranteed an italian opponent in the second round if she gets there jasmine paulini or camilla Giorgi. i mean i'm not overly optimistic about either of those as a opponent to be perfectly honest like both players have played a lot on clay um and obviously, Camille Georgie is hugely experienced and actually is in a little bit of a career peak. You know, she's she's had a really good sort of 12, 18 months or so. She won that title last year. So I wouldn't be overly optimistic about her chances in Stuttgart. But um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Um, <laughs> Raducanu, Georgie's got an early contender for the most ludicrous Raducanu headline of the season <laughs> uh, from The Express. Emma Raducanu retains public backing for now, but Gold Rush puts it at risk. George, uh, I used to work at Express, as many people will know, um, and I'll be honest, I'm quite glad I'm out of it. Uh, I used to have quite a good spidey sense for what an article is actually about Come from the headline. I have no idea what this is about. Tell me more.
0: I, I think it's like an editorial or something. I mean, the, the, the tagline is... Emma Raducanu needs to tread carefully if she wants to fulfill her potential on the court and continue to count on the backing of tennis fans, Um, which I just thought was absolutely bizarre. I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure there's that many people who are like actively invested in tennis enough to be tracking what she's up to on court. They'll see like flashes, like grand slams, like how she's going on. But I really, really think they're kind of over the pudding of people like, caring what she's doing and particularly being that bothered about how how many sponsors she has I, you know I, I know we've spoken a little bit about that just because we are invested in tennis doing a tennis podcast i'm pretty sure if you ask like the average joe blogs what do you reckon of emma raducanu's sponsorship deals they'll have absolutely nothing to say about it
1: i don't know i i i i think actually that that is because that's when people see her like because let's be honest there's the, the tennis this weekend was on the bbc that is incredibly rare. Outside of Wimbledon, people won't see her like the, your normal person, but they will see her because she's on billboards, she's on TV ads, she's on sports ads, and I actually think that people will will be more aware of her because of her deals with Vodafone, Tiffany, Dior, B A, Evian than her tennis.
0: I'm not saying I'm not saying they won't be aware of her, but then I'm not saying they then make the connection hey, what's she doing on that bull- billboard? What's she up to in her matches? You know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I don't think that necessarily... <laughs> the general
1: public can't work out that she's not actually on the billboard. <laughs> yeah. like, wh- oh, my... Why is she... Why, what's she doing up there? That's very strange.
0: I'm just saying, I think, like, you're either invested in tennis and you know the matches aren't going that well and you see the billboard and you might think, oh, she shouldn't have that many billboards if she's not winning many matches. Or you're not following the tennis. You're seeing her on the billboard you're like, Oh, that's the girl who won the US Open last year. She's really good. Yeah, good for her. You know, I, I don't really see how the two things come together as like, rah, billboard range. I must see her match results to see if she's worthy of this billboard.
2: You've you got, you got to love the Ad Express, haven't you? That, that, that Emma who needs to tread carefully, but <laughs> Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak don't in order to keep <laughs> the public backing. And, and also, like, we, we have a problem with Emma who making money on, a, on things outside of her actual day job but we don't have an issue with certain Tory MPs making money outside of their, their actual day job. Like Remarkable stuff from The Express.
1: You're listening to the Love Politics podcast with <laughs> Calvin Betts <laughs> Um just, just for the record, uh, the article we're talking about is by Neil Squires, who's the chief sports writer at, at The Express and is a really nice guy who I used to work with. And in fairness... Just having skimmed the article, it's relatively balanced. Uh, Neil, <laughs> N- Neil doesn't write the headlines, in fairness. Uh, some <laughs> online writers do. Neil, Neil's an old-school guy, and he certainly doesn't. So um, a little bit of a I think on myself. a serious
2: note on that, I, I think on a serious note that I'm still not sure. Like The public the public are quite strange with it, because I still get people coming up to me going like, oh, was it a fluke that she won the US Open or something? But I don't think tennis is like that much in the... The public mindset, and I think the people who are interested in tennis will kind of know the situation. So I, I don't think they're that going to give her that much grief. And we're like, what, what, what's the worst that can come out of it? They're still going to cheer for her at Wimbledon and Eastbourne and that kind of thing. They're not going to boo her because she makes a load of money out of Porsche.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's the question. It, it really is like if, uh, let's say, that a few people in the public decide they didn't like Emma Raducanu. So what? Like loads of people don't like yeah. Lewis Hamilton. It's never really held him back.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, if you look at where Murray started from in terms of popularity rankings, you know, he always tells that story about walking around at Wimbledon and someone saying on the phone, oh, I just saw that Scottish W word walking past me. You know, I, I, I don't see that happening to her anytime soon. I think she's on a pretty solid ground at the minute.
1: Yeah, I think most people as well, like kind of recognise that she's she's 19, right? Uh like she's she's a young girl like no I don't think anyone the fact that she won the US Open is incredible but I don't think many people expect a huge amount from her like even you know if she was I think maybe had been established for te- in tennis for 10 years I think there would be real outcry and would have been sustained outcry that she hadn't said anything about Peng Shui or like really you know especially as someone who obviously has Chinese heritage and makes frankly a lot of money out out in china i think there would have been real public outcry about that but actually there hasn't been really other than a few lunatics on twitter because she's young and i think everyone recognizes that she's just starting out and therefore doesn't doesn't really have the 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 weight or or necessarily know where she is in the world to to do that
2: but also i think if she doesn't win another match before the grass season this season she's going to fill every stadium that she's on in the grass. And I would even say she'll obviously win matches, but if she doesn't win a match between Wimbledon and the U S open, she'll still pull in huge crowds in New York. And then if she doesn't win a match before Wimbledon 2023, she'll still fill every stadium that she's on in Britain. So it won't affect any public perception of it.
0: Yeah. And I'm not being funny. I mean, if we think about someone like Laura Robson, for example, who, you know, obviously didn't win a grand slam, but started really well um, in her career and people knew who she was. The only question I've had about Laura Robson in the last five years of people who's not been um, like that involved in terms of, like, oh, is Laura Robson playing this year? What, what, what ever happened to her? Is she, If she's still going, what's going on? It's never like, oh, Laura Robson was totally awful. She never did anything with her career, you know, for, for casual fans. So I, I do think there's probably quite a disconnect between people who are engaged in the sport and not, I suppose.
1: Yes, I, I think so too.
0: Anyway, um, Emma Khan was playing in the Billie
1: Jean King Cup. Not not that I think. I think a lot of people might have been able to tell you that she was playing this weekend, and not many people would have been able to tell you the competition she was <laughs> playing in. I saw at least four comments on social media that said, I wonder how she'll get on in the next round after she beat Martin <laughs> Kovac." um it of course was a team tie uh, which britain lost 3-2 a bizarre match from harriet dart against um is it linda frutova who i think is a pretty highly rated 16 year old who was chucked in it, you know that she could have sealed the tie um uh, pretty remarkable from dart to go six love five two up and then she got i think she had a problem with her hand she was sort of dabbing away at it uh, and then lost the second set And then won the third. So, I mean, all credit to her. You know, clay is not her surface, as we've discussed. Um, Yeah, as you say in the notes, George, we were never likely to beat the Czechs. And probably even if it did come down to the doubles, I think they were still significant favourites. And they did. They triumphed 3-2. Any other notable stories from around the
0: Billie Jean King Cup groups, George? I think the one that stood out for me was just Fiontech's continued absolute tearing up of the tour i think she won a match is like six one six 6-love 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 and um you know i think it's Buzonescu and uh, what's the one called begins with a p um you know uh, andrea priscariu
1: you know not
0: not like top 10 players but the, the 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 fact of the matter is every single match at the minute 15 in a row she's won a set six level six one so she's doing this consistently and, you know, we, we've spoken a bit about her taking the number one ranking and kind of proving she deserves it after Barthie's gone. I mean, she's looking so ridiculously good at the minute. If she carries this on think through to the French Open, blows people away there, then, you know, really exciting time. winning women's tennis in terms of having someone who can be this brutally dominant and, you know, lay the gauntlet down for other people to catch her
1: yeah absolutely marmalizing result from uh, Shronteku. i I don't think i've ever seen so i don't think i've ever seen someone win two matches in a team weekend and drop one game i mean c- pretty absurd and as you say like okay Piscadio i i don't know a huge amount about and she's you know pretty inexperienced i think she's three twenty in the world, but you know berzinescu has been a top twenty player one time or another so um, yeah, pretty one-sided stuff there in Radom. And I think uh, they sold tickets very well for that tie as well, kind of off the back of Shontek's good form. Um, I was speaking to a, a Polish journalist about it, and he said that they basically like had this big extra marketing push off the back of it, and it went really well. So, um, yeah, good for Polish tennis, which is obviously in a bit of a boom with uh, Hubert Hercatz going well as well. Um, now, it's time to bring back a feature that I know so many people um, have been. by desperate... popular demand. Uh, yeah, but uh, which is a phrase I don't think has ever been used about Calvin Beton, so <laughs> I, it's a delightful to be one of the first to say it. Uh, minute tennis, where Calvin takes uh, a complicated concept in tennis and turns it into something simple in the space of a minute. Now, this week is slightly complicated because we wanted to specifically talk uh, about clay court tennis, and there's so many different elements to it. But we thought we'd focus on the fact that um, British tennis players generally aren't very good on clay. Uh, So I suppose the question that Calvin will be trying to answer in a minute, and then we might ask him some follow-ups afterwards, is why clay is the perfect surface to develop your game and why British tennis has suffered because of it. Calvin, you're on.
2: Um, It's the perfect surface to develop your game because generally because it's slower. um, So you have to find different ways of winning points other than hitting the ball hard. It takes different types of spins differently. So you have to generally... Open the court up with different spins, different shapes of ball, different paces, and you can't just basically hit through the ball flat, which is what we tend to develop in Britain for reasons that I'm sure we'll come on to in the question. Um, the reason why British players tend not to be very good on it is because simply because we don't have enough clay courts in Britain for reasons for two main reasons. One is climate, and another is the cost of making clay courts, the cost of developing clay courts and clubs tennis clubs tend not to want it for that reason there's cheaper ways to put tennis courts down there's cheaper tennis courts and on top of that we don't have many clubs anymore and tennis centers definitely don't want clay courts because they don't want to spend the money on them and they don't want to maintain them.
1: calvin that is very impressive to hit the minute almost spot on um Listeners at home won't have been able to see George trying to do a ten-second countdown with his fingers and then forgetting how to count when he got to six <laughs> to five. <laughs> tough, <it> tough, <laughs> to go from two hands to one was too tough <laughs> a transition for George. Yeah. Um, really interesting stuff there, Calvin. Uh, especially about you know trying to build clay courts in the UK. I understand the um, LTA I think has some European clay courts and some synthetic clay courts is that right and are they that different like could you walk onto one and go this is synthetic clay
2: they're entirely different synthetic clay or artificial clay isn't a clay court it's astroturf it's basically what you used to play on uh, if i guess now they have 4g pitches that we all play football on but any anyone of my age and maybe a little bit younger we used to play on astroturf courts um and you still have astroturf tennis courts as well that's basically what artificial clay is they're just red instead of green and the (laughs) and the sand has been put in a kiln um to make it red as well as opposed to normal brown sand so it's not even clay top dressing it's just sand so it's basically the only the only similarity to a clay court is that you can slide on it but the pace an astroturf court is fast and an artificial clay court is fast and it skids through which a clay court doesn't do it does the opposite of that so Artificial clay courts are absolute rubbish. I despise them.
1: Uh, and you mentioned the sliding. I, I spoke to one of your mates, Dan Kiernan, who runs a tennis academy in Spain about this earlier in the week. And we talked about the movement compared to the tennis. Uh, or, or like, In percentage terms, what, how, what percentage of the challenge of moving to clay if you've not played on it is movement? And what percentage of it is just the tennis and the different spins?
2: It's at least 50% uh, moving on a clay court because you can't really... It's, I've often had people ask me to teach them to move on a clay court. And it's one of those that you can't really teach. It's basically something you develop through playing on it more and more. You can't just sort of teach someone how to slide because you have to slide. People think you slide after the hit, but that's not, you slide into the hit and that's the difficulty.
0: So tomorrow morning, Calvin Beton is promoted to chief executive of the Lawn Tennis Association. What, What's the first thing he does with regards to clay courts in the UK? Does he put more in? Does he arrange more finances for top players to go abroad and spend more time on clay? What, what, what do you do?
2: The problem is, like I said, George, is is the climate doesn't help because it rains a lot here and it's cold and they freeze up pretty quick. um Clay courts you can't play on them when it's when they're frozen, that sort of thing. So one of the things I was surprised that never happened is down at the National Tennis Center they used to have two clay courts with a canopy over them. They weren't necessarily they weren't indoor clay courts, but they had a canopy, and that was an excellent facility they had there. But in in sort of classic LTA way, they've done away with that and put some courts of an entirely different sport up in Paddle. (laughs) So we've done away with the one good thing that they did at the National Tennis Centre, I think. Um, But I'm surprised, yeah, that that a few more places don't have um, covered in terms of canopy clay courts. I think that would solve a little bit of the problem. But again, the problem comes that tennis clubs... And there's not as much many clubs as there was twenty years ago, but clubs don't want to spend the money on clay courts. They, they, they you need somebody to maintain them on a regular, even a daily basis. Um, to roll them, to spike them, to when they, when the to put the top dressing on them, when the lines come up, you need someone to put the lines back down. They don't want to spend them. And the tennis centers, which we have more of, which the kind of the old pay as you play places they definitely don't want clay courts their council run they want to lay some cement courts and that's it they can they can forget about them then so it's not really it's i don't really see as there's an obvious problem other than some of the places in the south of england maybe it's, it's difficult in the north because it's cold a lot and it rains a lot some of the places in the south could have some more canopied clay courts that's what i'd one of the things i'd look to do
0: you'd um accidentally stumbled upon one of my uh questions I was going to come to next, which was about uh, Paddle or Paddle. I once got t- teased for calling it padel, but I'm sure some people... No, I
1: call it Paddle. Paddle. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you. Absolutely. It's, a, it's, a, it's not spelt Paddle, it's spelt padel.
0: I, I had the uh, what was the Great Britain Fed Cup team laugh at me when I called it Paddle to them in a conference one. So, you know, I'm glad if there, any oh, of them... After are...
1: all the years you spent laughing at the GB Fed Cup team, seems,
0: uh... <laughs> um What actually is the thinking there... Calvin, what? Why have they done that? And why is it such
2: the wrong approach? It's a different sport. You might as well put some five-a-side football <laughs> pitches down. Like it's not even the same. You play with. You don't even play with a racket. Kind of looks a bit like. For anyone who doesn't know, paddle's kind of a cross between tennis and squash. I guess. Uh, you just play doubles. Um, you play with a wooden or a plastic bat. It's kind of a bit like tennis, but it's a completely different sport. Like no different than having putting some badminton courts up. Hmm. like it's absolutely ridiculous they've done it because <laughs> i think that they thought it would be a pr movie it's getting really popular and look it's a great social sport it's really good fun to play i love but, it i i,
1: I yeah, play yeah. um in uh de Lobo in portugal and it's, it's yeah amazing. it's, it's
2: really good but yeah it's i don't can't for the life of me understand why they've put them at the national tennis center and now they're putting them in it's part of like the coaching now tennis coaching they're doing paddle coaching courses the lta are doing paddle coaching and blows my mind but and again one of the things i should have said about the clay courts as well is that you've got the issue with the climate in that it rains a lot they freeze up a lot the other problem is when it's really hot they they dry up really quick so your water bill you they need water in like every half hour and that will put the water bill through the roof as well because obviously say you've got four clay courts they're going to they're going to need a lot of water and you're going to have to do that every half hour in the summer so again clubs aren't really keen on that at risk of babbling on about Paddle on a tennis podcast, but I've,
0: I've always been interested, though, in why, why Paddle falls under the jurisdiction of the LTA? Like, where's the LPA? Like, how's that? Not Wait, it doesn't. It
2: doesn't. They have an actual... There's a British Paddle Association. They've just gone into BPA. some partnership with it, Like right? I don't really know the machinations of it, but I can't believe that... The, one, I can't believe that they've actually... I don't understand why they've done it. And two, I. it really infuriates me that they took out... We don't have enough clay courts in Britain anyway we aren't, definitely don't have enough covered clay courts and they decided to do away with two of them and put some paddle courts down. Like,
1: uh, just to, on, cool the, on the governance of British Paddle or paddle, <laughs> Um it's actually not even called British Paddle anymore. It is now called LTA Paddle. paddle. Um, ah, they, they, they operate it under the auspices. The
0: LPA, surely. That's outrageous. <laughs> well, I
1: mean, let's face it, George. No one talks about the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, albeit that is technically its name. Um, so you know if you really want if you want to talk about marginalised sports here I'm I'm all about talking about croquet for the next 10 minutes Um, when we come back we're going to talk more about Monte Carlo where Stefano Sissipas defended his title he beat Alejandro Davidovich Vakina who knocked out the world number one Novak Djokovic Now, it was a great week for Stefano Tsitsipas in Monte Carlo. As anyone who has watched his 15-minute YouTube blog this morning uh, will know, I probably can't recommend it. Some people say they can't recommend it enough. I just can't recommend it. Uh, He won the title in Monte Carlo. He beat Alejandro Davidovich Fakina in the final. But ADF had already had a pretty decent week, beating Novak Djokovic on his return to court. Uh, It was a pretty remarkable Match, really, I mean anyone who and I could probably sit here and talk maybe for the whole podcast about Alejandro Davidovich fakina because i I think he's my favorite tennis player. He is brilliant to watch, he wears his heart on his sleeve, he plays on clay like he's playing on grass, which I think he would prefer anyway. He throws himself around anyone who saw his uh, five setter with Botig van der Zanschloop at the French Open last year will know exactly what I'm talking about. That was also the highest scoring Scrabble match of the year. But anyway, um, George, what was amazing about this match, as much as David, Fikic, David ADF's uh, kind of antics, was that Novak Djokovic got tired. I don't think I've ever said that before.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I uh, we, we've spoken a bit before about kind of match fitness and match sharpness and how difficult it is. But I wouldn't really expect, and again, Calvin will give you a far more expert view on this, but I'm I'm surprised you'd see the fatigue elements of it come in in the first best of three sets match. I'd expect to see that perhaps by the end of a week, if he's been out all season and then he's got through to the final, had a lot of three setters, that maybe that could catch up with him slightly. Um, but to kind of get into a third full set kind of implies to me, Maybe hasn't been playing that much, really has kind of taken his foot off the gas. Um, and the other half is just you know, is he has he been playing with people who can challenge him? I'm guessing like a lot of the tour have been hopping around to places he couldn't travel for lots of the time. Has he been able to get good quality practice partners in there? Was he was he caught cold? Dude, I thought he's been practicing in Monte Carlo this week or the last couple of weeks when people have flown over, so that wouldn't have been such a problem there. But yeah, I was pretty surprised. Um, I thought, you know, to be honest, I thought Davidovich-Fokina really should have won it in straight sets. I thought he was comfortably the better player. Um, so I guess you'd say Djokovic did well to take it into a third. And, you know, he'll feel a little bit more vindicated by the fact ADFs then got on to reach the final and give Sissipas a good match. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, pretty pretty worrying return. I mean, that he, said,
1: was, he was bad. I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned he was lucky to get a third set. I mean... ADF was battering him, you know, he was six three four two up. And then, <laughs> I say he dives around a lot, he made like a ludicrous dive eight feet behind the baseline that was completely unnecessary, and took all the skin off the top of his <laughs> hand. And I, I can't remember who was on comms for it, for um, Amazon, but they pointed at, like, just spent the next 10 minutes being like, this is so stupid, like, it's completely self-inflicted. And, and it did, he, like, lost the break, and I think he lost 12 of the next 13 points, lost his head, lost the tiebreak, and then won 6-1. I mean, Djokovic's serve was broken nine times in the match. I'm not convinced that's ever happened. 51 unforced errors over three sets. That must be something like a personal best for Djokovic. I mean, Calvin, it's so far from the player that we know. I mean, is this just ring rust or has something bigger changed?
2: I think it's ring rust. And I think like what George was saying there about he's surprised that he was getting fatigued so early. It is one of these mystical things that no one's ever been able to pinpoint this idea of match practice that you can train. And I'm certain, you know, knowing Djokovic as we do, he'll have been hitting the training pretty hard. He'll have been doing hitting his fitness training hard. But once you get on, I've seen it myself where players can be, especially at the start of the season, you can do a full pre-season doing the the, the four by 400 meters and that kind of thing. And then it comes into a match and they're just getting knackered in a match. And It really is just actual match competitive official match practice that that they struggle with.
0: I was going to um, just touch on your point there about unforced errors, James. The match that popped into my mind for Djokovic, he he hit 100 once. Um, It was a five-setter against Gilles Simon. But I think I'd be amazed if that was topped uh, as his personal.
1: I mean, that's that's 20%, right? Whereas this was only 17%. So there you go. It wasn't a personal best, but it was remarkable to watch. I think what I found... Without wanting to get into the tactics of it too much, because I think it is a bit of a, a bit of an outlier of a match. He he just played very safe. Like it, it felt like he didn't have a lot of like poison in his shots. Like a not a not a lot of um oomph. And I suppose you know against Davidovich Fakina, a guy who does go for his shots, he's got quite a big forehand. Um, he doesn't really hit a massive serve. It's very much a kind of starting the point serve. I guess against a guy like that, you might think it's not a bad way to play. But it it was so far away from anything like a competitive way of playing that match.
0: I guess another point vaguely worth making is that Monte Carlo is quite hard tournament to come straight back into. Given its kind of Masters events, you're already playing very, very high-level players. But it's one of the smaller Masters events. So, you know, the qualifying is going to be quite a high level in terms of ranking. You're actually going to be coming in quite likely against a, a fairly decent guy, even as one of the seeds. So... You know, Davidovich Fakina is a very good player and has shown that at this tournament, pushing guys hard. So you know, I, I'd still, if we're looking, throwing it forward a little bit, I'd still expect Novak to get enough matches under his belt and kind of dust the cobwebs off, etc. But yeah, there were certainly a few more worrying signs there than I, I was expecting, to be honest.
1: Calvin, I know you're something of an aficionado of a windy tennis venue. Um, Monte Carlo was particularly windy this week, and I mean, Djokovic is—is is he not talked about as one of the better wind players around?
2: Yeah, I'd say he probably is. Yeah, it tends to be like—I mean, he's—he's he's obviously got good hands. He's skillful. He can compete. Yeah, he'd be probably—he's one of the best at everything around, isn't he? <laughs> um, it but um, yeah, it, was, it certainly was a bit windy last week, wasn't it? A bit more than I can usually remember it being. Um
1: but it's the same but uh, you know I only bring it up because I watched a number of matches um I mean Carlos Alcaraz I mean incredible that the couple of months we've had and then Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic go and two at Monte Carlo but that Alcaraz match um against Seb Corda was supposed to be one of the best matches of the the round and it just wasn't because it was quite windy and, and it affected both of them pretty badly um I mean if you're Djokovic now George what like how do you feel leaving Monaco? Like, downhearted or not? It's
0: um, a good question. I mean, I sort of said last week about his kind of return that actually his results outside the slams haven't been that important to him over the last 12, 18 months. Um, I think the important thing for him this time around is getting himself back into a position where he's ready to just jump in and win a grand slam. You know, that that's where this set of tournaments will mean something to Djokovic. I mean, if look, if he was if he was obsessed with keeping the world number one ranking, this would be a really disappointing tournament because it's somewhere he didn't do well last year, had a good chance to pick up some points, and, you know, another poor showing's kind of kept opening the door for other guys to overtake him. I don't really see that as a priority now. I think the priority is pretty much purely Grand Slam wins. So the question for him is will he get enough matches between now and the French Open to be ready to win Roland Garros? And you wouldn't really say he'd be too worried with that. He'll probably go to Serbia and play the Serbian Open. He'll get some matches in Madrid and Rome. He might not play Madrid. He's skipped that, I think last year. Um, so I, I wouldn't be too worried at this stage, but the, the bigger Damaging thing that could potentially come up is again losing that air of invincibility that he's had for so long. He doesn't want that going into the slams. Sorry about
1: that. Have you been interrupted? Calvin was busy yawning because you it, so
0: <laughs> yeah. like... My door just swung open and I think knocked a load of stuff off. And I wasn't really sure. I could see James going, like weirdly looking around. He wasn't sure if he was looking at me or. I oh,
1: no, I was just. i I tell you what I was doing to kind of drag us back into the realms of a professional podcast. Um, I was looking for the people who've beaten Djokovic at Monte Carlo because I had this impression and kind of looking at it, it stands up that actually his record in Monaco over the last, well, since he won it in 2015, which is the last time he won it, he's not got past the quarterfinals since then. It's weirdly not a place he's actually done really well. The people who've beaten him there since are Yiri Vesely. David Goffin, Dominic Thiem, which obviously a big one, and Daniil Medvedev, and then Dan Evans, and now um, davidovich Fakina. So he, you know, for whatever reason, this has become a place that actually doesn't go very well. I suppose it is probably always his first clay court event of the swing. I can't imagine he would often have played an earlier one, if ever. So maybe we don't take much by this because you know he's not played since dubai uh dubai and and also it's the first of his clay
0: yeah and he does always say it takes him 3 weeks to adjust to the movement or whatever but but he's yeah, been, probably mean,
1: been playing on clay for the last 2
0: months but that's the thing yeah that's exactly what I was going to say i mean that that would work as an excuse in normal times but for this particular tournament he's had a long time to get ready for this so mm.
1: yeah anyway he uh he only played one match so we probably shouldn't give him too much airtime uh alex I'm just going to have to call him ADF. I haven't got a chance of actually getting through his name properly. He does at least kind of go by Alex, as far as I can tell. Uh, So I'll take that as some sort of a win. Uh, But he did make it through to the final, as you mentioned, George. uh, He beat David Goffin, who's been in pretty good form on the clay this year. Taylor Fritz, who's also won a title on clay this year. Grigor Dimitrov in the semis, uh, and then was beaten 6-3, 7-6, by Stefano Sitsipas in the final. Um we've talked a lot about Tsitsipas on this podcast in, in various ways, and I think he generally surprises us. I think most people we think overrate him and therefore we kind of underrate him or or, you know, pair that back a little bit. Um Calvin, I think what impressed me the most, and I know you'll talk about forced and unforced errors here, so, you know, I might have to put a time limit on you. Um, but I think what impressed me most is the Tsitsipas backhand It's something we've talked about as vulnerable, but I'm starting to think that now we can't do that. It seems like it holds up under most levels of pressure.
2: Um, Sometimes, yeah. And I think that the courts at Monte Carlo are relatively slow, so that definitely helps him out. And he's tall, so you can't get it to ride up on his backhand. I still think that the best guys are going to pressure it and it it doesn't hold up under pressure. In those circumstances um and it's not just a case of holding up under pressure as well he can't do the damage on it that he can do on his forehand no one can to be fair no one does as much damage on their backhand as they do on their forehand other than um richard Gasquet. um but uh, that's because his forehand's crap um <laughs> but um um even like this is one of the sort of the truisms of tennis really where people think like the great backhand i i always say something i always say that the that you're in trouble if your best shot is your backhand. You're in trouble in tennis because even even the great backhands like Stan Wabrinka, who has a phenomenal backhand. But if you look at his actual stats, he hits something like even in a best of five, it's like seven winners on it, and 38 forehand winners. So it, it's it's just one of those. Um, but yeah, he's it, got his backhand's all right. It, it's it's a decent backhand. It, it's not a great one, and as you alluded to and some, one of the data analysts in tennis has indicated today that he, he's got a great backhand because of the number of points that he won through Davidic Fakina hitting a back, hitting an unforced error off his backhand. But that's just manipulating stats to suit your own narrative. You could, have, you can have an argument that he, he was basically saying that their winners and unforced errors was, was similar, but Davidic Fakina hit 14 errors off David, um City passes backhand when when City Pass had hit a backhand on the previous shot. But that might could be because the backhand was so weak that Davidic Fukina saw an opportunity to hit, hit a winner and he didn't make it. But it's not hard as as you know the difference between forced errors and unforced errors, it's not hard to determine, let's be honest. Like there might be two or three in a match that you could have either way, but we know what an unforced error is, we know what forced error is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know where to pick which strand to pick up there. I was gonna come in and talk about the um the backhand being the best shot thing. I mean, um, you know, you would say someone like Djokovic and Murray, they have the world's best backhands possibly. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily say they're actually better than their forehands. You know, their forehands are where they're dictating the play. Um so that's it's, always quite... I
1: mean for those for those two specifically, isn't it more often a defensive shot as well? Like the thing we always say about Djokovic is that his, his backhand is great because he's able to, it's so hard to hit a winner against his backhand, you know, against yeah. Nadal, for example, you know, that, that forehand that Nadal hits cross court isn't as potent because the backhand comes back with interest. I
2: think, I, I say, sorry, George, I just interrupt. I, I say, I always say this, that a backhand is basically like, if you think about it in boxing terms, it's basically your jab. You're, you're keeping your opponent at distance. You're setting yourself up for something else, but it's not the shot that knocks people out.
0: Hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, we can do some stuff about backhands in maybe one of Calvin's one minute explainers one week, uh, kind of talking about the difference between a two and a one. But you know, the, to take Djokovic and Murray's examples, the thing that's so good about them is obviously the way they absorb the pressure deep. You know, the way Djokovic, that was kind of the big thing that changed about the Nadal-Djokovic rivalry on clay was how Djokovic was able to take that backhand early against the Nadal forehand and not have to kind of overcompensate, um, not giving Nadal that kind of forehand down the line to kind of kill him. Um, you know, he was able to take because that backhand was so stable, but he's also good enough to kind of change the direction and put it down the line so well as well. Whereas a guy like Vavrinka has like such a ridiculously powerful backhand, but you can get on top of that backhand. You can really take your forehand into it, keep him pushed back and away. And I, I think Sissipas definitely falls into that mold. He's got a backhand I really like on an aggressive standpoint, and he does a lot of good things with it. But it feels to me like the slice has never been one of his stronger shots. And it feels like you can kind of get on top of him with heavy hitting into that backhand side. And I think better players will do that. That said, for his season as a whole, you know, we were talking about him coming into this season with elbow surgery. I think if he'd have said that, he makes the semis of Australia. He's made a couple of semis in the hard and a final and now picked up a title in Monte Carlo. Clay is probably where we're expecting him to really kick on and maybe challenge for a slam i, I think he's in a pretty good position to surpass um and i i think he's done really well this season given that surgery leading into it so I, i'm actually you yeah, know we, we'll maybe have a touch on james's power rankings at the end or whatever but sissipas for me is still comfortably the guy behind Djokovic and Dow given that teams out the picture everyone will talk about alcaraz but if you ask me who's the guy out of those two who's going to win the title it's probably sissipas still at the moment
1: it's funny you mentioned those power rankings, George, because I, I kind of dip my toe in the water. Anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I've started doing this sort of weekly update on where we are in the clay season, who might go and win the slam. And I've started kind of, um, well, making it instead of me picking 10 names out of a hat, a, a little bit more scientific than that. And I haven't plugged in all the data yet, but the early signs are that Tsitsipas is probably in the best position to go and win it. What's been really interesting is that it doesn't matter what data you use. Trying not to have Rafael Nadal at the top is very, very hard indeed.
0: Because didn't you have Djokovic at the top this week?
1: I did because it was me <laughs> picking names out of a hat. But okay. if you if you do it like using numbers and facts and not like the two birds that run my brain, um, then it's actually very difficult not to get Nadal at the top of it, uh, Calvin.
2: Wouldn't wouldn't that wouldn't you have not enough? Um, sample size for Alcaraz on that though yeah he hasn't he hasn't played as much
1: (laughs) well yeah so he's he's played a fair bit on clay um it's going to be tricky because he doesn't obviously have like so one of the metrics I'm using is wins at Roland Garrison the last five years obviously he's going to get massively marked down on that but because I'm using data from outside tour level as well. So really futures and challenges will play into that, you know, one or two percentage points. Like, um, I mean, without going through all the methodology, I'm essentially using a uh, percentage weighting to about six different categories, including like race points this year, career clay court win percentage, um, clay court percentage win this year. Uh, so it, it's lots of different things, but yeah, Alcaraz. look, sample size is never big enough in sport. We all know that. Like it's why you can't it's why you can't make money betting on sport.
2: I, I was thinking though, it's more that this version of Alcaraz of the last six weeks is different than what we've. It's it's completely different entity than than anything before that.
1: It's true. It's true. Yeah, and there there will definitely be eyeballs where it's like, you, you know, Diego Schwartzman will probably be quite high on the list, but I don't know if any of us think Diego Schwartzman is going to get past the quarterfinals of the French Open. George yeah. was thoughtful and...
0: It depends on the draw, as always. <laughs> sits but... on the fence. <laughs>
1: Congratulations. Um, to come back to what you were saying about Titi Pass, yeah, it, it's he beats Varev in the, in the semi-finals. And part of the reason that I wanted to ask that question about his backhand is that there was a lot of backhand-to-backhand backhand trading in that match. And invariably, it seemed that Stefanos came out on top and and yes, the conditions suited him, but that said to me that there's a hell of a lot to this one-handed backhand.
0: It's, it's funny you bring up that match. And again, Calvin may totally disagree with this and you can always take his expert opinion over mine, but their two backhands, I always saw them as having different, completely different problems. Like Zverev was always really poor on like the shorter balls. He was struggled to kind of attack, which to me is where Sissipas has always been quite strong. Um, But Zverev is quite a good defensive backhand. He can absorb a lot of pressure. He prefers playing that kind of deeper baseline game. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of interesting that you're saying these backhand wars were won so much more by Sisyphev. I I thought Zverev would do better in that match. I know he's out of form, um, but I'd expect that scoreline to be a lot closer, really, even on Claire.
2: Yeah, yeah, I was a bit surprised at that, to be fair, because Zverev has got a good backhand. Um, It's his best shot that and his first server his two best shots you could argue there is only two good shots um, to be honest <laughs> what about um, his volleys Calvin uh, uh, well, I think that you might have might be able to find a pre- uh, me previously talking about Zverev's volleys on one of the other pods or <laughs> ten of the other pods um, <laughs> but, um, I'll say it again he's got the worst volleys in the top 200 I mean um, it was
1: it was. I did, know, I did write down when watching the match how appropriate it was that on match point to, to lose Zverev had an overhead to save it didn't convert it and then shanked a volley into the net. It was incredibly appropriate.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that City um, Pass has got Zverev's number as well. There's obviously a bit of history there yeah. and that kind of thing, but he's definitely in his head. So I'd, I'd put that as much as anything as the the reason for the outcome of that match. I did find it quite funny this week that I'd seen, I don't know whether it's in the press conference after that Zverev has put himself as one of the, the current big three in tennis. He said He's something said like that
1: before, hasn't he? Uh, yeah, he says oh,
2: it's him, Medvedev, and uh, who was it? Him, Medvedev, and Djokovic are the big three in tennis. What? What big three of what? Big three twats.
1: It's incredibly harsh on Tanil Medvedev, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, right, yeah, but um, that is strange. Uh, just on a totally tangential note, uh, has Vera got a new grunt? Because. It felt to me like he's now got he's got one of these two note grunts which I hate anyway. He's got like a wind up grunt and then an exertion grunt, but it all happens before he hits the ball. Like it's sort of like an ee, uh, and then he hits the ball.
0: It's I love, the, I love, I love the two line the the team one's my favorite one. That's such a good grunt. I, I love
1: never it. ever want to hear you make that noise ever <laughs> again. What's the
0: <laughs> one people do with Rublev's? boy, uh,
1: Yeah, he's uh, he has a very strange one. I mean, I don't like grunting at the best of times, but I just I, I don't know why it was. It just struck. I don't know. Tell, let us know on Twitter at I Love Tennis Pod whether whether that's a news of grunt or maybe just what he what he's always done. Um, and he, I don't
2: know about anything else. He needs a new shirt because those uh, those sleeveless ones he wears. I mean, come on, you gotta yeah. have the guns for that, and he hasn't.
0: And it's just also not that appropriate, given what people can call those shirts, isn't it?
2: Uh,
1: yeah, overall, if you're trying to, like, re-sanitise your image, maybe not the best idea. Speaking of, like, terrible aesthetics, um, I-, I made a-, a note to myself to, like, check Stefanos Tsitsipas' last tweet. Now, because he's been playing this week, he has actually been tweeting about tennis. But anyone who follows him on social media will know every couple of days he tweets something that your aunt on Facebook would be pr- proud of. Um, the most recent one I could find water is the least expensive yet most valuable liquid in the whole universe. Yeah. Cheers, yeah exactly. Steph. Cars are the only reason the radio business is still a thing. Deep. <sighs> Not many Oof. people know this, but Greece and Cyprus share the same national anthem. Yeah. Steph, we, we don't need you as a thought leader. Like, just crack on with playing tennis and doing, like, head and shoulders ads and everything will be fine. Uh, right, we're running out of time rapidly, uh, but George, you did want to talk about the uh, number one ranking. Uh, you think it's going to be fluctuating a fair bit in the next couple of
0: weeks? Um, I, I noted it could be pretty interesting if Monte Carlo results went away. There is a bit of an elephant in the room. I know we just spoke about it very briefly there, but he... He is quite close to potentially being number one. Had he beaten Sizibas in that match, really could have opened the door for him. Um, there's still some like weird 2019 rankings going on aren't there, around this kind of. Yeah,
1: case, there but... are still points. I think I think it's Djokovic still has points on his record from Madrid 2019, which yeah, is completely that's insane, obviously. That's but um... Um, I mean, Zverev becoming world number one. I I know we talk about a lot of things a lot, but Zverev becoming world number one while being investigated by the atp for domestic abuse and by the way no one knows what's going on with that investigation that's been going on for five months it took them three months to even talk to the woman in in case um it would be a disaster for tennis
0: yeah and you know there's a pretty decent case to make you should be serving an actual on-court ban anyway that that aside you know that's a, that in itself as a in terms of an image thing for tennis is very bad. But he should, he should, there's a pretty legitimate argument that he should be serving a ban at the minute for what happened with that umpire. I mean, that was pretty outrageous. That that minimum should be a six-week ban, as far as I'm concerned.
2: Also, not, not as important as either of those two things, obviously. But it's it doesn't look great for the tennis rankings. He's definitely not the best tennis player in the world and right. hasn't been the best tennis player in the world for some time. Like You could have argued there was a little period last year where he was in probably the best form but that's that's long gone now. He's definitely it'd be ridiculous if he, if he was ranked world number one.
0: Yeah, and arguably this is the most important thing about Monte Carlo this week is the resurgence of Sissi into a bit of a force because everyone else is injured. You know, we need a bit of a Sissi domination really in the next four or five weeks, probably to to cut off any possibility of this happening. I mean, I Djokovic, you'd probably still say if he can find any semblance of form. Shouldn't have matches to defend before the French Open. Did he win? Mm. Did he get to the final of Rome before winning, or did he win Rome? He won Rome, didn't he, before mm. French yeah, Open? I'm so with the schedule. Yeah,
1: um, Well, he'll probably win in Belgrade this week, which would pick him up. Because so. if if you, he's only defending ninety points there, because he lost to Karatsev there uh, yep. last time, so he could pick up two fifty there. But yeah, you mentioned the injuries. I mean, there is a very not distant possibility that three of the top six men in the world will not be at Roland Garros. or um, well, certainly not in any kind of shape because Medvedev has had hernia surgery. Nadal's got this rib thing, which means he might only play one tournament before then, if that. And Berrettini's had hand surgery. So there's I've a just real seen,
2: possibility. I've just seen there's some pictures on Twitter this morning that Nadal is training again.
1: Yeah,
0: Nadal will be there. I'd, I'd, I'd put every penny I have on Nadal turning up at the French Open in some capacity.
1: There you go if anyone wants to take a 7 pound 35 <laughs> bet with George on uh, whether Nadal goes to the French Open then you could make yourself a pretty yeah, yeah. penny. Yeah, the, uh, but just it just, it just... I'm in debt. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it would be interesting to see, you know, who can pick up points. I mean, I'll tell you who he's not going to make world number 1 in the next 2 months, but I'll tell you who is just quietly moving his way at the rankings and and could be like world number 5 by Wimbledon. It's Casper Ruud. Like just like quietly getting on with his work, like you know, picking up points on the clay, showing he can play on the hard court as well. It's quite impressive.
0: Yeah, where where was he in your power rankings, James?
1: Uh, it's a great question. I haven't got them in front of me, but I think he. I can't remember. I you know what? I can't remember. But he. I don't think on the stats he'll make it in the top ten.
2: Not the it's top also, ten without looking at them. There's there's half a sniff Alcaraz could get up there. He's got nothing to defend till U.S. Yeah. Open, has he? Yeah, that's a good point. And he's capable of going. He's he's one of the top four in the world. So he's capable of making semis, final, winning any of the tournaments. Mm. So it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I mean, he if makes he makes semis, U.S. Open though, didn't he?
1: Yeah, but if but if he, I mean, you know, he's going to go. He's playing Barcelona this week. He'll presumably he will play Madrid and Rome. You know, if he goes and picks up maybe a thousand points total across those tournaments, like that'll take him up to seven in the world straight off the bat. Um, and then, yeah, as you say, you know, another 750 points at the French. And, and I don't know, who knows? I mean, I, I'm trying to think what his record on grass is like, but there's no... Re- I mean, I remember talking to Ferrera about him and he definitely said that grass would be a surface he should go well on. And if you look at his game, there's no reason he wouldn't, right?
2: Well, the grass now just plays like the hard, especially at Wimbledon. So Mm. if he gets the movement all right and he's an athlete, where did he get to uh, um, the French and Wimbledon last year?
1: Uh, French Open last year, he got to the third round and Wimbledon, (laughs) he got to the second round. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of points to pick up there and he'll get a good draw because he'll be a top 16 seed. Carlos Alcraz is going to dominate the world. I I love that, like, we've been saying he's going to take over the world a long time. And then he loses first round and we're like, there's even more reason he's going to take over the world now. (laughs) The Love Tennis podcast where we basically make it up as we go along.
0: Yeah, Uh, maybe it's more thinking from us all. (laughs) We should become the anti Zverev number one slam winner podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, George,
1: Carlos Alcaraz also doesn't have any sleeves. So we're going to have to do something about that and then, uh, and then we might have the anti-Sverev. I think that really is all we've got time for this week. Uh, it just remains me to say thank you very much for listening. Uh, do come back next week. And as always, leave us a rating, leave us a review, drop us an email, lovetennispod at gmail.com. I promise I'll read it.